morning again. At Christ the Word, I get to wear a couple hats. So if you know any musicians, I'd be happy to hand over the musician hat to somebody so I can just wear the pastor hat. Uh, but, pastor hat on. Uh, glad that you're here. Uh, in case I didn't get a chance to meet you, uh, I'm Patrick. I'm the pastor of Christ the Word Church. And excited to have everyone here. We've been on a journey for the past several weeks. So if you're just joining us this week, uh, you're joining us mid-journey, which is fine. We're glad that you're here. Uh, but we've been walking what we call the landscape of Lent. And the uh, landscape of Lent is really just, it was a way to kind of walk us through this journey from Jesus beginning his ministry all the way to Easter Sunday. Lent is the season of preparation, of penitence, of prayer, and reflection. And so we've been using different landscape images, sights, and sounds along the way to help teach us and remind us of what the season is about. Uh, does anybody remember where we began our journey in the first week? In the desert, in the wilderness, right? And what did we learn about in the wilderness? Anybody remember? What was what happened to Jesus in the wilderness? He was tempted. He was tempted in the wilderness. That's right. And then from the wilderness, we discussed the wind. And who did Jesus have a conversation with? Nicodemus. Nicodemus, that's right. And we compared the spirit of God to the wind. You know, we can't grasp the wind, and the spirit is not something that can be fully grasped. And then we talked about water. And who did Jesus meet at a well? Samaritan woman. You didn't know there was going to be a test, did you? <laughs> <laughs> we met a Samaritan woman at the well, and we learned about Jesus being the living water and having something to offer beyond just basic thirst. He offers something so much deeper, so much more. Then we discuss mud. How did Jesus use mud? To heal the blind man. To heal the blind man, that's right. He spit on the ground, we talked about the Holy Spirit a little bit, and, and mixed in the mud and healed the blind man. And then this past week, what did we discuss? Lazarus. And where was his body In a tomb, is a cave. Exactly like that. <laughs> You're speaking in tongues. Right. Um, but that's right. Uh, we talked about the cave, and we, we discussed a little bit about uh, how the Sanskrit word for cave is also the same as the crevice of the heart. And we kind of discussed about what we learn about the heart through this experience of resurrection. And this Sunday, we celebrate Palm Sunday. So, uh, 
And we have my little palm here. We have our palm bush over here that thankfully that will be brought to help get the ambiance of a palm ground. But before we go any further, uh, let's go to God in prayer. So let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are, that you love us so deeply, and that you call us to be your own. And we come before your presence and worship now. This time is not about what we would get from this time, but it's about us giving to you. And in an effort to come to you and worship, Lord, we come looking into your word, praying that you would silence any voice in us but your own, that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. And Lord, I pray as a humble preacher that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten, but may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forever. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints said, Amen. 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 Well, the journey is getting interesting now. As we head into Palm Sunday, Jesus is on the home stretch, and this journey is actually getting a little darker as we approach Good Friday. And as we approach Good Friday, we are also approaching the cross. But before we get there, there's a celebration as we head into Jerusalem. And so as we look at this passage that uh, Lee read for us, Matthew 21, 1-11, I want to break it up into three major categories of the sights and sounds of, of Palm Sunday. We have a donkey, a palm, and a shout. So we'll start with the donkey. I don't think you can address this passage without addressing the donkey. So let's start there at verse 1-2. through two. If you're following along your own Bible, we'll have it on the screen as well. So now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So it appears in this passage, actually, we've, we've jumped into the Gospel of Matthew. We've been following the Gospel of John, but we've come to the Gospel of Matthew here, and Jesus has stayed with Mary and Martha for a while. We had the whole Lazarus experience last week. They have stayed with him for a while before coming into Jerusalem and coming into the city, and he requests a donkey who's with a colt. So I have a question for you. This is an easy one. If you had a choice between a donkey or maybe a mighty steed, a horse, which would you choose? Sabu said the horse. <laughs> the mighty sea. Anybody here going to choose the donkey? You would? Horses don't like me. Horses don't like me. Maybe the donkey would be better. Anybody had any experience with donkeys? Stubborn creatures. <laughs> stubborn, stubborn creatures. Not known to be the, let's say that's not the Ferrari. You know, the mighty sea, the white war horse would be the Ferrari. The donkey would be, what, the Pinto? You go. The Yuka, whatever. Uh, it's not even up to Mini Cooper status, you know, come on. Smart but too. It's just you have this donkey, and what's the big deal with the donkey? If Jesus could have chosen any animal, why does he purposefully request a donkey? Because can you follow with me on this at least to see that Looking at Jesus throughout his teachings, throughout his journey, everything he does is very purposeful. Everything he says, everything he does is purposeful. So he must have chosen the donkey with great purpose. Well, we learn that it is with 
great purpose. That it's more than just a mundane mode of transportation that Matthew helps clue us in with the following verses, doesn't he? Because we go to verse 4, we hear why he chose. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. And so what's being quoted here? Actually, Zechariah. You were close. Most of the time you'd be right if you said Isaiah. So uh, in Zechariah, see, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, a daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now does that sound familiar? Familiar? Zechariah 9.9 is what he's quoting. So, understanding this, what is this communicating? What is Jesus choosing a donkey and then Matthew reminding us of this passage that any good Jew at that time would have known the old prophecies? What is Jesus communicating? He's king. Anything else? He's bringing salvation. He's bringing salvation to salvation to the people. Yeah, righteous and having salvation to you. That's right, he's communicating an identity piece here. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and all along, he hasn't been completely secretive about his identity, has he? No, he's, he's been telling people who he is, what he's trying to accomplish. And so, we have Jesus stating that he is a king, that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. But, there's another interesting piece here. What else do you think this is communicating? Humble and riding on a donkey. Humble and riding on a donkey. Do you think that's what the people were expecting? Yeah, likely, what they were expecting is that when Jesus came in, probably weren't expecting him to ride on a donkey, though, if they were observant, they'd see the prophecy, but they were expecting him to tr stroll right up to Herod's mansion and to seize control. And then to take on the mighty Roman Empire so that they could reclaim all of their holy land. That's likely what they expected. Because what helps us understand this is that at the time, even their view of the Messiah was a little different than we've come to understand it today through the New Testament. The old idea of the Messiah really was not that he was going to be divine, the true Son of God, as we proclaim but then it was just going to be maybe the next great King David, maybe greater than David. They were going to have this mighty person come along, like the judges that sprung up in the book of Judges and continued to take control and things spiraled out of control. Then a judge would come on and set them right on course. They were kind of expecting that. This great person would come and set them on course. And so this would be this conquering king that would storm into town and take everything back and say, this is our land. God gave it to us. This is our land. But instead, Jesus comes humble, riding on a donkey. Why do you think humility was the attribute Jesus needed in this moment? Why humility? Why not power and might? Because we know he's powerful, right? 
I mean, this is the guy who can calm storms, who can walk on water, who can heal the sick and the blind, and can raise people from the dead. Why didn't he come in and swing into Jerusalem with that power? Why? Humility. Because he was going to give his life. He was going to give his life. There's nothing more humble than giving your life. The scripture says that there's no greater love than this, that one would lay down their life for another. And anybody who lays down their life for someone else, we call a hero for their sacrifice. But you know what? To be a sacrifice, you must be humble. You must be humble. And so we learn in our first point the conquering king did not come to conquer a place but to conquer sin and death. That's a different situation that Jesus is coming into. It's, it's a different salvation than the people were expecting, isn't it? I mean, they were thinking literal salvation from the Roman Empire to reclaim their land. That's what they were thinking. But that's not what Jesus is doing, is it? In fact, we learn that Jesus isn't coming to reclaim this earthly kingdom. He's coming, bringing in a whole new kingdom ushering in the kingdom of God, and he's concerned with sin and death. And for someone to save us from sin and death, to be the sacrifice, they must be humble. Jesus is the conquering king, but he comes to save us from sin and death. So we've discussed the donkey. Let's move on to the next glaring image, the palm. So this is where if you all had palm branches, you'd be waving them all in the air, right? Just like the kids. We have our palm. And so we come to verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So you have your palm branches, and they spread them on the road. We now see the people's response to Jesus' message coming in. So what's, what's their state of mind as Jesus is strolling in the neck? They're silent, right? Don't you see the excitement here? I mean, just picture a big parade. You have this parade and, you know, confetti cans. Okay, they didn't have confetti cans back then, but if they did, I'm sure they would have used them. And it's just a big celebration. People are cheering as Jesus is strolling into town, this one-man parade coming in on a donkey, and they're running before him, laying cloaks on the ground and palm branches. Okay, what's the deal with the cloaks? So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that nobody here grew up in ancient Middle East. Am I right? Okay, okay. You all look a little young for that. But cloaks at this time, I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be unlike some traditions we have in, in our country. Uh, but they were a sign of respect that you laid them down the road to cover up the dirt so they come along. It would be like a gentleman way back in the day, I don't know many guys who still do this, would take off their jackets and then lay them over mud or puddles so that their lady friend could walk over and not get dirty. Anybody know that tradition? Any guys still do that? Yeah, my jackets are too white to clean, so you can step over. But it's that same kind of thing. It's a sign of respect that you lower yourself for someone of importance. And you put your cloaks on the ground so it's a sign of respect, but the palm branches convey something a little different. 
When we hear palms, we think of Palm Sunday. And we think of, if you grew up in a church, perhaps you had the palm processional with the kids coming around, and, and then you wave your palm branches in the air. My home church, we actually, all the churches, because in a small town, all the churches are right there together so that you can stare at each other when you're leaving worship. Uh, so they were all right there, but one of the beautiful things is you know, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Episcopalians would all come together on Palm Sunday, and they're doing it this morning. They would gather in the streets, they'd block the streets, and they'd all gather, all the choirs singing, usually someone brought a donkey, and all the palm branches, and they would sing, and they'd march the streets, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And then we'd all separate and go to our, our separate churches because we didn't want to listen to each other's sermons. So we would go do that. But it was this beautiful image of everybody gathering together, this excitement of the palm branches. And so what does the palm branch mean? Well, this tradition began long before Palm Sunday. It actually originates with the Jewish festival of Sukkoth, or as you may know it, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Has anybody ever heard of that? Maybe you don't celebrate it or you, you you don't really know the great details, but you've probably heard about it. This was probably, especially in the first century, this was one of the most popular feasts of the Jewish people. And really, it was a time to remember their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. If you've been here for a while, you know, we even studied the book of Exodus and, and discussed what all that meant. But their deliverance from Egypt, this was a celebration of that, and people would, they would spend a week in this feast, and they would live in little shelters with palm branches and things to remember the wilderness where they lived in temporary shelters. And it was remembering where they came from so that no matter what generation would come along, they would remember. And so they would wave their palm branches and they would uh, wave them around as a celebration. So... If they are essentially doing the same thing to Jesus, what are the people communicating? Maybe even unknowingly communicating with these palm branches. Anybody have any ideas? If it's from a celebration that remembers deliverance from Egypt, and they're doing it to Jesus, what must they be communicating? Deliverance from their people. Deliverance. Yeah. Salvation. And so maybe they didn't even realize it. But they're communicating with a little palm branch. They're communicating who Jesus is and his function. Because Jesus came with a purpose. He just didn't come to just hang out. Hey, what's up? No. Jesus came with a great purpose. And what is that purpose? Jesus the King comes to deliver his people. That's the point. It's as simple and as complex as that. Jesus comes to deliver his people. And the people, I think, had this in mind, but as we discussed before, they had a different deliverance in mind. They weren't thinking the kind of deliverance that Jesus really brought, which they didn't really realize what bondage they were truly under. You'd ask them about bondage, they would just talk about how horrible the Roman Empire was. Conquering them. Keeping them under the thumb. But what about sin and death? There's nothing more oppressive than that. They really didn't understand 
for everything in the world to come. And yet, Jesus came as a conquering king to deliver his people. So we move from a donkey and a palm to close with a shout. What is that shout? In verse 9. Read this with me. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. So if you grew up in church, you've heard this phrase before. If you didn't grow up in church, maybe you've heard somebody say it before. But it's kind of an interesting thing that, you know, Hosanna. Okay. What are we talking about? <laughs> what are we talking about with Hosanna? So I'm going to give you a little bit of a Greek and Hebrew lesson here. Because as we've talked about many times here before, the Bible was originally written and recorded, written the New Testament in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew, right? So if we have this term Hosanna, do you know what that term is in Greek? you know what it is in Greek? Guess what? It's Hosanna. <laughs> it is. So what we, all we've done is we've taken these Greek letters and then we've taken the sound, we've transliterated the Greek word into English. Instead of trying to translate what it means, we just said, let's just write something that sounds like it. And so they've taken Hosanna and put it into English letters, and you have Hosanna. So what does Hosanna mean in Greek? Well, here's a little trick. It's not Greek at all. It's Hebrew. And what's the Hebrew word? You want to guess? Hosanna. Hosanna. Sounds very similar, actually. Hosanna. That's the word in Hebrew. And so the Greeks did the same thing that we did. They said, well, there's this word, instead of translating, trying to get the meaning, we're just going to use the word, and we're going to transliterate it into Greek. And so you have this word that's been transliterated several times. I mean, it sounds confusing, but it's really not that confusing. It comes down to it, it is a Hebrew word. And so where did this Hebrew word come from? Well, the only other place that it's used is in Psalm 118. And the word Hoshiana is save us. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. This save us phrase is that Hoshiana, the Hebrew word. It's the only other place that's used. And then it was transliterated into Greek and then now into English. But that's the word that's used. It's help us, save me, Hoshana, save me, save us. But something happened to this phrase over the years where it's kind of changed in its meaning a little bit. You know, words have a time where they change a meaning, don't they? I mean, we have words today that mean stuff that they never meant back in the day. And so words do shape meaning, and Hoshana has kind of this new meaning. Because isn't it interesting, if we actually just expand this verse to verse 26 as well, it's save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then notice the switch here at verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Isn't that an interesting switch? It, comes, it goes from being this plea for save us, help me, to, but you got this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Isn't that kind of an interesting switch? But that's essentially what's been happening to this word, Hoshana. In fact, John Piper, pastor and theologian, uh, uses an analogy of a football game. And since we actually just came through uh, March Madness, why don't we use basketball as an example, okay? So we'll switch it up a little bit. Imagine that it's the end of the game. I don't know how many people are rooting for a UNC in here. Wow. Hardly any Cardinal fans. They had one. So the rest were kind of like Gonzaga go. Maybe you don't care about Gonzaga, but you would just would rather see the Cardinal Because maybe you're a Duke fan. Well, imagine it's at the end of the game. It's close. Gonzaga has the ball. And they could win the game with just one shot. And UNC's trying to hold them off. They're on defense. And so you have the whole defense and all the fans yelling, stop them. you got to save us from this. You've got to just hold them off. There's just a few seconds left. Hold them off. Help us. Hold us off. Hold them off. But then you have the other fans on the offense going, you got this. You can do this. Just make it. Can you see the difference of the two cheers? One is kind of defensive and a plea. Please, please, we've we got to win this. The other one is expected. Almost speaking as if it's already going, you got this. You can do this. That's what's happened to this word, Hoshem. It's this expectance with this plea for help. It's a plea and a praise. It's a cry for confidence. And so when these people are yelling Hosanna without even necessarily realizing it, they're yelling, hooray, salvation is coming. It's here. The son of David is our salvation. Hooray, salvation belongs to the king. And then the Hosanna, the highest at the end, is, you know, let the, let the angels of heaven join in and sing praise. Salvation is here. Do you see how that plea with this expectant hope all rolled in to one? The word Hosanna moves from plea to praise, from cry to confidence. And so we learn from it this. Jesus is the salvation we so desperately need. But here's the interesting point of that. We don't always know the salvation we need, do we? We don't always understand the salvation we need. The Hosanna's changed meaning over the years, but in a few days, these shouts would change too, would they not? In just a few days, these shouts of Hosanna, of praise be, we can come to the name of the Lord. We're going to become shouts of crucify. How quickly things change. What changed? What changed between him strolling into Jerusalem on his donkey to a celebration to them crucifying him on Friday? What changed? Maybe something really didn't change all that much. The very thing that Jesus came to deliver them from is still in them when they're praising him as well as when they're crucifying him. There are people in need. And so our question becomes, is 
as we close is, will your Hosanna still ring out when all grows dark? When things get dark and troublesome in your life, will your Hosanna still ring out this cry of expectant hope? Will it still ring out, or will you, too, change from Hosanna to crucify? It's an easy trap to fall into, isn't it? You get into a dark time, it's easy to start cursing God or cursing others, cursing the situation, losing hope. Things get dark quickly. Will you still sing Jesus' praise when he doesn't meet your expectations? He didn't meet their expectations. What about when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? The landscape grows dark, but we must not abandon our hope. For we may, might just find that the object of our hope is even greater than we could ever imagine. Let's go to God. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are.